0: Welcome to show 18 of the C-Suite podcast and the second in the series of specials I'm producing in association with the World PR Forum, which is taking place in Toronto at the end of May. My name is Russell Goldsmith and I'm delighted to be joined by two more speakers from the uh, forum. On the line from Brazil is Paulo Henrique Suarez, Director of Corporate Communications for Brazilian mining giant Vale. And here with me in the studios of Marketeers is Ezri Kalabach, who is Consultant, Lecturer and Senior Associate at the PR Network and i'm also very pleased to welcome the president and editor in chief of the homes report arun asudaman who will uh, be attending the event in canada too now as usual if you want to get involved in the discussion please do share your thoughts on twitter using the hashtag #csuitepodcast paulo welcome to the show and thank you for joining us from brazil uh, your keynote at the conference is on the challenges in internal communications across cultures in uh, global companies, and so I thought that makes uh, sense and a good place to uh, to start today's discussion. I assume Vale is no exception in having to overcome the issues uh, you're going to be speaking on, given the fact that, um, and as I understand it, including third-party contractors, uh, you've got over 110,000 people working for the organisation across 27 countries. Um, so... That immediately suggests the need to use multiple languages, I guess, in your internal cons. But the theme of the conference being communicating across culture, I assume there's a, a further clue there to some of the issues you, you've got to face.
1: Sure. Well, uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here, Russell and the others. Uh, great to be able uh, to join the conference in Canada in May. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we do have that challenge uh, at uh, Valley, and uh, the first difference that people will notices about language. And uh, of course, we have to face different languages. So not only uh, even though we, we speak Portuguese in Brazil, we produce everything in Portuguese and English and share with our uh, internal teams around the world so they can do local adaptation. But let's face it when our operations in, in Mozambique where even though Portuguese is one of the official language, not everyone speaks and understands uh, Portuguese uh, very well. So Besides that, uh, the Portuguese spoken in Mozambique is different from ours, so they also have to do local adaptation. So we are right to send uh, everything to our employees only in English or in other language, and we want them to get uh, their, uh, their own language, so everything is translated and adapted to the local media. H- how many languages
0: are you um, translating into then?
1: Well, uh, officially uh, from headquarters we produce everything in Portuguese and English, but uh, our local teams uh, that are based uh, in Canada will do that in English. In Bahasa, in Indonesia, for example, in Singapore, in China, uh, they will do it in Mandarin. And in New Caledonia, they will use uh, French, but uh, French from New Caledonia and not uh, French French.
0: And and you mentioned about um, sort of using the local teams to do that. How how do you actually deliver all that content? Is there a specific sort of process that that you use or or you follow?
1: Yeah, we have uh, we have tried uh, different ways uh, in the beginning when we started uh, operating many countries. Uh, we did the, all the translations here in Brazil, and we would send it, for example, in Spanish and in English. And we, what we found out. Uh, that uh, whenever the material would get to the country, there would have some mistakes and some needs of local adaptation. So uh, in order to avoid this delay, what we did is we created everything in Portuguese and English, and we make sure those are fine. And when we send out to our teams, they either have some time before or right after the action to do the translation in, in that local area. So we make sure that it's correct and it's adapted, adapted to the local needs of our employees. So instead of doing everything here in Rio, we we prefer to do in the countries where we operate.
0: Yeah. Now, now, now we mentioned, uh, I was just saying on the intro there about the the theme of the conference being communicating across cultures. Um, In in your keynote, I know you're going to touch on some research in in the area of managing people across cultures, including work from the likes of uh, Gert Hofstede. is it? Um, I was just wondering if you can give us a, t- a taste to to what you'll be discussing and and how that sort of like impacts on s- some of the things that you're talking about there in terms of communicating across different different countries.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I I, I just mentioned there's a, a researcher and a professor from uh, the Netherlands called uh, Geert Hofstede, and he does some interesting studies on where he shows that different nationalities, different people. And that's so obvious, but sometimes we forget about it. Uh, for example, he, uh, he mentions that uh, there are four different uh, dimensions for national culture, which uh, would be some cultures are more in, uh, individualist, other are more collective. Uh, some prefer uh, long distance from power, or they prefer uh, closer to power, either strong or weak, uh, uncertainty avoidances. And the last one would be uh, some cu- some, com- uh, some cultures are more uh, masculine, or the more feminine. Uh, those are dimensions that uh, uh, Hofstad uh, works on. And if we check his studies, you'll find out that different countries have a different way of uh, of uh, um, getting information and preferring to receive information. As an internal comms, we have to understand that. So I can give an example that, uh, uh, you know, Brazilians or Latin people uh, could say they prefer more interaction, more face-to-face, and more uh, interaction. They they respect hierarchy much more than other countries. Uh, So that's the difference on on delivering internal comms to different audiences. So we have to pay attention to those differences, because if we don't, we might be using different tools and different approaches in order to get different audiences, because they come from different backgrounds and different cultures.
2: Uh,
0: Esri's nodding, nodding away there. Did you...
2: Well, I just wondered because um, in internal comms we often talk about using visual communications as a means of, of getting messages across consistently in different uh, language and cultural groups. Is that something that you do much, Paolo?
1: Yes, uh, we we pay attention to that, and we also pay attention to the tone of voice, we pay attention to the approach, and also how we're going to start an action. That makes a whole a, a lot of difference. Besides the difference that we have in different cultures, we also have uh, the preferences. For example, as I said, uh, in some cultures, people prefer that you send material written. You know, just write, write a note or write something, and they will understand what you want. They will read it, and they will get it. In other cultures, besides the written material, they need to have someone explaining or reinforcing the, the position of that issue, especially someone in the management team or a supervisor. So we do have those differences that we have to respect. And besides the difference in culture, we have to understand that people also prefer to receive information in a different way. Let's face it, the younger generation, you know, older people, they have different ways of uh, learning and also from absorbing information for, uh, uh, from the company.
2: Paolo it's Esri again. Some people say that the you know the explosion of digital uh, global communications has eroded some of those cultural differences that people around the world exposed to international culture are sort of converging. Whereas other people say no, it's the opposite. It makes difference in culture much more visible. What, what's your, been your experience there? Uh, I could
1: say that both are right and uh, both uh, are correct. And uh, I don't believe there is a single silver bullet. I believe there is a mix of actions that you have to do in, in, in terms to engage your employees. So there is absolutely no right or wrong, but there is absolutely oh I'll, I'll move everything into digital. Some people still prefer papers, some people some people uh, prefer to have face to face. So that will depend. So I'll believe that Valley is that we have to have a strong mix of actions. Uh, towards our employees to promote engagement and to promote dialogue. And that way, that's how we prepare ourselves. So we have digital, we have printed, we even, we even, for example, we use billboards, uh, you know, paper billboards, because we, in some of our minds, it's just like a small city, 8,000 people coming in and out every day. So you have roads, so you have space for big billboards. So we use that as an internal vehicle as well. So at the same time, we have internet, we have a newsletter daily to our employees in different languages and with different approach. But uh, I believe in a mix instead of being just one silver bullet.
3: Hi, Paolo. Arun here. Um, I was just interested in, in a few of the things you said and, and jumping in based on, 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 on Esri's question. Um, One of the things I think that people say that local uh, local cultures have become more important, despite the fact that we, you know, we now make use of various global social media platforms, um, is because there are such differences in, in culture and, and humor and so on. I'm wondering how you take that into account when you're trying to figure out the right tone and, and the right kind of cultural factors in terms of what you're communicating. And secondly, how much control are you willing to delegate and, and let go of um, for the local markets um, under your
1: remit? Well, thanks for raising that up. Uh, we have tried everything <laughs> to come to where we are. So when we start to be a global company, we decided that we want to centralize everything when you have to approve everything. And we noticed that didn't work and it wasn't good for anyone. So we decided, okay, so let it go. You do whatever you feel is important in your local market, and we'll just... Uh, see what you become. And then we noticed that we lost a lot of synergy and there was a lot of competition between areas. So -hmm. we came up with a different approach. I say we are not centralized, but we are not, we don't give the full freedom to everyone. So what we find out is the best way is to build. So we we co-create with our local uh, uh, internal communication team around the world before we start anything. So if there is an issue on health and safety, instead of us here sitting and thinking to everyone, we invite everyone for a brainstorm. We invite everyone to come in and jump in and give their ideas. And so there is a, 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 a sense of belonging, a sense of sharing. And then as we build our strategy, we share with more people and they can jump in, comment, it takes longer. But it's more efficient at the end. So and when we implement it, uh, when we implement uh, the, the action or the solution, instead of being something ready and and like everything is in a box, we give ways. So we give directions. So let me give a very simple uh, you know example. Uh, if we come up with internal campaign, as I said for health and safety, we decided to have you know one message, one key message, in our approach. And then for the local view of that material, there will be a picture of an employee. Uh, instead of using only one employee in one situation, we send the files open and we let people do the adaptation, not only on the translation, but also use a different employee or use a different situation, as long as the whole idea and the whole strategy is united in one. So that's how we are working at this uh, very moment uh, with the good results and good feedback from our team around the world. I, I,
0: th- I think your session is going to be uh, extremely popular by the sounds of uh, all these different topics that, that we're covering. Um, wh- wh- while we have Varun here, um, and uh, without in- embarrassing you, uh, Paolo, but on your, uh, your biog um, for the World PR Forum website, it says... Uh, that you're listed in the Holmes Reports annual list of the uh, 100 most influential in-house communicators around the world, uh, Arun, why uh, why do you think um, our man on the on the line here from Brazil has made that list, and uh, how do you put that put that together? Um,
3: so the it's so Paulo is is a member of the Influence 100, um, which is a list that we have been putting together now for I think four years, and it, essentially it's our Compilation, if you like, of the hundred of who we deem to be the hundred most important in-house corporate communicators. It's based on on a number of factors, um, some more qualitative, frankly, than others. But you know, things that do matter are the size of the company, the influence of the person in that role, who they report to, the budget um, under their control, um, their reputation for innovation, and of course, you can only have one person. Um, from each company on there, uh, the respect as well in which they're held by the industry at large. So obviously, Paolo, um, coming from from Vale, which is, you know, as described by The Economist, um, the biggest company that the world has never heard of, uh, is, is, you know, a natural fit for, for the Influence 100. Um, and not only do we, do we kind of compile this in terms of putting together the names and, and background of people uh, but we also research them. We ask them a lot of questions. We um, we get a wealth of information about uh, various areas, including, for example, the the budget under their control. We found last year that I think just over a quarter of the Influence One Hundred um, had a had a total PR budget of more than one hundred million dollars, uh, which is not to be sniffed at. I don't think, um, although there was a reasonable reasonable percentage that had a budget of less than ten million as well. So it's not just down to the size of budget uh we also find out all sorts of information about their geography their background their agency hiring patterns um their favorite brands and communicators which i always I always think is quite interesting uh who they report to their their team structures uh, and we also analyze their social media footprint which uh, which throws up some interesting findings yeah. given uh, you know the the requirements nowadays for everyone to be digitally switched on.
0: Well, well, that's interesting. Paolo, sorry, we're talking about you, I was going to say like you're not in the room, but you're not in the room, you're you're on the line, but how did did that feel about being listed in that?
1: Well, uh, it's uh, great, Uh, it's nice to see that the work uh, is being uh, recognised, not only my work, but my teamwork, Uh, it's not a one-man show, It's, it's a whole bunch of people around the world yeah. uh, doing their best in order to de- deliver what's necessary for valid strategy. Um, so it's, it's, it feels very good, but I know there's a long way to improve and to get better every day. So sure. uh, there are a lot of things to be done and to be improved in different areas and communication yeah. Uh, yeah. here at Valley.
0: Okay. Um, well, I want to come back to Arun um, because, obviously, uh, as I said at the start, you're coming out to Toronto to, to the event. Um, Apparently so. Yes. <laughs> and uh, well, I guess in your in your role as editor in chief, I'm I'm assuming you get to attend a, a number of international events like like the World PR Forum. But what What's your expectation for for it? And uh, yeah, just in general, what what do you think global conferences like like this sort of mean for the, for the comms industry? Because there's so many mm. of them now.
3: Yeah. Good. Good question. Um, there are so many of them, indeed, including our own, of course. But um, I mean, I, I kind of sometimes dub it the uh, the kind of the the, the endless uh, caravan of, of of global PR conferences, yeah. uh, because as soon as one ends, it feels like you are um, heading towards another one.
0: Do you, Do you ever get worried that you see the same people on the circuit as well? Often I, I have
3: no comment on that <laughs> question. Um, having said all of that. This will be my first World PR Forum. So um, I really don't know uh, what this event will be like. My colleague Paul Holmes has, has been to uh, at least a couple of these beforehand. And it's always looked like an event that um, has has considerable stature in the global PR industry and attracts a lot of people, which uh, is a good, frankly, a good measure of, of success. Um, for me personally, and and in my role, the advantage of these conferences is, first of all, they generally provide good content and content that our readers and users would like to read or see or listen to, depending on how we deliver it. Um, so whether that's interviewing some of the speakers or covering the sessions, you can usually get good mileage out of the content. Uh, and secondly, you know, it's great networking. Mm. We cover the global public relations or communications industry um, at conferences like these, Um there's there tends to be a lot of important people from the industry uh in attendance and that's very useful for us i think it's
0: interesting you're talking about social media earlier and i'm a big twitter and linkedin mm. user but you still can't beat talking sitting no. down and having a coffee with yeah, someone, and chatting to you them, can't so.
3: you can't um have a proper chat with someone via twitter direct messages yeah. you know unless you have to know people to yeah. do that i think that I, I can't imagine this is this is um, news to anyone, and I'm sure you'd agree with
0: me. The value of face-to-face
3: communication is, is
0: so important. Yeah. Um, it, Ezra, you're, I mean, obviously you're presenting a workshop there, but what's what's your expectations for the event?
2: Um, quite similar, actually. Uh, I I recognise the syndrome of of seeing certain faces um, in in several different places, but nevertheless, in all the events that I've been to, mostly with the International Association of Business Communicators (IABC), which is one of the uh, partner bodies of the Global Alliance, um, I've never left without some insight that I can actually use. So that, as you know, the content is always valuable. Um, and then the other aspect that I think is really important is the awards aspect. At Global Alliance events in Toronto, um, there will be the Compre gala dinner and people will be presented with awards um, who have won awards from the various membership organisations right. that make up the Global Alliance. And I've been very active in IABC's Gold Quill Awards. Um, At every level from judge to to international chair in 2010. Um, And as Paolo was saying earlier, it is really important for people's work to be recognised, whether that's internally within their own company or externally, through winning an award, it makes a huge difference. And actually, there's some science behind that I know, because I'm just reading a book at the moment called neuroscience for organisational change. Um, I would say it's not brain surgery, but it kind of is Um, and uh, I'm going to the launch tomorrow, which I'm very excited about. And the book talks about the fact that our brains are social um, and are wired to respond to the kind of praise that that getting an industry award represents. Um, So it really does make a big difference. I'm I'm very much in favour of award schemes. Um, And finally, the networking, of course, is is just a massive thing. Um, And the fact that I'm extending my stay in Toronto beyond the conference because I have friends to catch catch up with there is down to the fact that I've been to so many IABC events right. in Toronto yeah. and oh. kept in touch with people that I've met over yes. the years.
3: Mm, I like that you've got some scientific underpinning for award shows. I, <laughs> yeah. um, we definitely need to start using that for, Just, our, justify, for our own awards Justify well. the huge
0: entrance fees yeah. and the, and well, the dinner. No, I'm not that <laughs> I'm being cynical, but... Uh... <laughs> I mean,
3: yes, I, I may have, yeah. I think, I, I mean, ultimately, I think, as, as, as Ezra says, you, know, you, you, you do learn things yeah. at these events and that's very beneficial excellent
0: well I want to bring it back to the the, the topic of in, internal cons. we sort of went off, went off subject there as, as, for a second but um actually on your uh, on your website um Irene, there was there was an interesting article published uh, a couple of weeks ago in inside I was Doing a little bit of uh, research on mm-hmm. it. Um, fast forward, why your 2016 internal communications efforts fell short, which mm-hmm. I thought was quite interesting. um Written by Gary Greats, principal at W2O Group. And within it, he asks uh, where employees go to get specific information inside the company. And he says, do they prefer video? Are they active on social channels? So, Paolo, I want to come back to you on this, because um, I guess this is quite a huge challenge for a company such as yours? Because obviously a large percentage of employees are not desk-based, you know, they, they, in fact, in your case, they're, they're probably down a mine or on a railroad or or, or at a, uh, you know, in the ports. How, how does that work for you?
1: Yes, uh, we try, uh, as I mentioned before, we try to use a different uh, mix of uh, internal vehicles in order to reach everyone. And again, we rely a lot on the leaders to do their job as spokespersons persons for the company. They have to represent the company to their employees or to the group of employees they work with. So uh, first, of all, what we did is we have uh, uh, we have different sessions on training the, uh, our uh, our managers in order to do and well the internal communication. Uh, I've seen a lot of training for media uh, for media training. Uh, we use the same techniques in order to train our managers to talk to the employees. So we developed uh, what we call the leadership hub, where it's online and there's absolutely everything they need to know and they need to share with their employees. So we've got videos, we've got PowerPoint presentations, we've got uh, text. uh, We've got absolutely all sort of uh, materials uh, divided in subjects and where we stimulate them to talk to the employees. So this is in one way. And by international researchers, and by our researchers, we know that most employees prefer to receive information face-to-face. And then we, we, we created a mix of all sorts of uh, different vehicles uh, in order to get it. We have printed newspapers, uh, mainly here in Brazil. We have, uh, like, one-minute podcast that we use our working uh, radio. Uh, in order to put that uh, uh, message out to the employees that are working on, on the machines that don't have the computers uh, on, a, you know, on a regular basis in front of them. We have like, uh, we use TV screens and uh, we share information. So some of our employees, uh, they, they need to you know, go on a boat to travel and go to work. And while they are sitting there on the boat, we use those TVs to send out information as well and share what we need to share with them. And uh, so, as I said, different ways of uh, reaching them. And uh, I mentioned before about using view, using view boards. We use paper view and also have electronical billboards as well. So all sort of different ways to reach. We believe that we have to make the relevant information available. And each employee will see how they can uh, use. And something that is coming up in the next uh, month, we are we are launching an app for internal com uh, for our employees to download on their mobile, so they they, they will be able to access information about Valley uh, through their mobile.
0: Huge amount of content being produced. Um, yeah, that's quite quite um a task for you for you. I would have thought. Yeah. Um, no, was, uh, a lot. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well I was gonna say you you've um you in the true sort of radio sense, you give me a perfect link there in your mention of podcasts because um Arun, who is, is sat here with me in the studio, you're a no uh, no stranger to producing a podcast or two yourself. Um <laughs> do you wanna tell us a bit a little bit about the echo chamber?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean first of all I should say it's really nice to be kind of on the other side of the mic. <laughs> um and uh, I know that uh, how hard or, or or certainly um you know sometimes it, it, it takes effort to run podcasts and so thank you for, for doing so much of the heavy lifting here today russell um yes we have the the echo chamber podcast of the homes report i think it's been going for for something like three years maybe even longer um started as out as you know a bit of a lark uh as these things do um and has now become something that we do pretty much weekly myself um uh, my colleague Arthi Shah in San Francisco as well, uh, and and Paul Holmes, and it's become popular, increasingly popular. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. I love talking to people. I find it's just a totally different way to discuss, you know, whatever the issues are in you, our industry. Do you think there's a
0: resurgence in in podcasting? It's inter, interesting. So, listen, LaPello like using it from an internal yeah. point of view. I mean, I'm a big fan of of podcasts. Naturally, I. Produce Mm. this, but I listen to a lot as well.
3: I mean, there's no question they are really popular now. I'm not. So when you say resurgence, were they popular and then they stopped? Well, I think.
0: I think there was a lot of fuss about it when, right. when it's sort of like yeah. when it first, you know, when iTunes first launched and and, and mm. then, but it, then I don't it know, personally, of, I, th- yeah. I feel, this is just, put, I've got nothing, no stats to back this up. I get, I, and we've actually done a C-suite podcast on podcasting, actually. We had Neville uh, Hobson, who's um, yeah, of course. obviously from F-I-R. the FIR network. Yeah. I'm trying to th- remember what show it was. It was a, it was a few months ago. Um, and we had the the two guys um, that produced the Innovation Ramble. Tom Ollerton of, of We Are Social sure is, is one of them. And um, we... Um, yeah, we were talking about podcasting and the fact that it's kind of it seems to be more popular in the states than in the UK. And Neville's view on that was because in the UK our radio is so good, um, mm. our radio output is so good. Where you know, whereas in in the US it, it was like a, a channel for for people to sort of yeah. like uh, express themselves, and that's why he felt it, it kind of grew m- more popular in the US. Um, you'd have to listen to the previous show to listen more on that <laughs> discussion. Um, but uh, it, it feels like there's more shows to listen to, and I'm discovering, you know, as we were talking just before before the start of the show, I was listening to your show that you produced last week, um, yeah. yesterday, you know, and I, and uh, th- there seems to be more content out there to listen to. Now.
3: I mean, there's so many. I think maybe that's the challenge: is that there's a, there's a really long tail of podcasts out there, especially when you get into the the kind of B two B world. And I think we're we're all kind of aware of the big the big podcasts, you know, the serials and. and mm. Um, fresh air, American life, all American, um, which is really interesting. I never really thought about it geographically before, um, but once you get into the the business side of things, I think there is a really long tail. Um, so, and it's still, I think, relatively hard to find the, the right podcasts. Mm. It's not a, a, an exact science. Ezra, are you, are you a
0: fan of the media?
2: Medium uh, of the podcast medium. Yeah. I I would say I'm a fan, but to be honest, I'm not a very frequent listener. And I think that um, what it boils down to is, uh, as, um, as Paolo was saying, he's got all these different channels and all these different ways of reaching people. And clearly, each of those is thought through because there's a specific situation or a particular requirement. So I heard, I heard a speaker on, uh, on a, at an event on Monday night say, the thing to ask is, for what problem is this the solution? Mm. And I think for some people... Podcasting is the perfect solution because they're driving in their yeah. car, they've got time to listen or, you know, they can do it on the tube or right. it's less intrusive, you know, or whatever it happens to be. But it has to solve a problem for people. And that's going to vary depending on on technology, depending on cultural issues. Um, but um, I think it's a it's a fantastic medium like any when it's done well. There will always be exceptions, you know, high, high profile. Pieces that people pick up and like cereal. Although I have to admit, never listened to that. Um, it's very good. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, but I, I think, as I say, the key thing is, is it's got to it's got to solve a problem yeah. for people, and yeah. then then it will get used.
3: Okay. Um, I mean, sorry, just just jumping in there. My my um, anecdotal evidence from listeners to our podcasts uh, suggests that it's just use useful for them because they can listen to it while doing something else. And that's the value. When you're, you know, if you're a journalist like we are, um, you're quite used to producing content that requires all of someone's attention. They have to read it or they have to watch it. And they can't really do that sometimes when they're, say, on their bike or uh, driving Mm. Um, or even, you know, I mean, nowadays on the tube you can, but it's, it's maybe not as easy. So the ability to do that, it's sort of like secondary consumption of content. And I think certainly for us, that's really valuable because it gives you a different way of reaching people and engaging them. Um, And also, it's a different way of presenting information and talking about things compared to just writing about it, which is, you know, quite static, despite you might get great comments and so on, or most likely you won't get great comments. You'll you'll just get a few nutcases. Um, But the The ability to talk something through, often you'll learn things. I I learn things in these conversations that you just don't necessarily yeah. when you're writing a story.
0: Definitely. Um. Well, let's bring this uh chat back to the um the the uh, World PR Forum. Um. And linking to the Holmes Report, you guys uh are launching a report at the event.
3: So, um. Yes, we are. In the, in the midst right now of working on what is called the Global Communications Report, um, the Global Alliance is one of the partners. Uh, the, the, the initiative is actually being led by uh, USC, if I need to get this right, USC, which is University of Southern California, their Centre for Public Relations, which is a new unit within the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Um, he did that without any
0: notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say don't quote me
3: on that, but I think <laughs> probably too late. Uh, so it's it's quite an initiative. I think there's another eight organizations that are partnering on it, names like um, Amec and uh, uh, Wellcome, Arthur Page Society, PR Council, of course, the Homes Report as well, where we're, we're really helping in terms of content and research. We think it will probably be one of, if not the biggest, surveys of the global public relations industry. I think we already have um, more than a thousand responses from people on agency and client side from all over the world.
0: Uh, Is there anything you can share now or is that too early to say? Yes,
3: I can. I I can say broadly speaking, um, the results, I can't give you exact percentages Mm. because the deadline is actually Friday, but the results demonstrate as you would kind of imagine, a industry that is in rapid flux. Um, and frankly, it's probably not changing as quickly as you might think it is. So whilst the, the, they're being pressured to change because of all the different things that are happening, um, there seems to be a level of concern about the, the ability to change, uh, which a lot of the times comes down to the ability to, to find the right people and the right skills um, and, to, and to make the investments that are required to change. Uh, a lot of the questions we ask in the survey are looking at how the industry develops between now and 2020. Um, I can give you, you know, one of the headline findings, for example, is that when we asked people um, how big they think the industry is, we estimate that it's around 14 billion, just just looking at agencies, this is. Um, by 2020, I think people, I think something like half of the respondents, more or less, said they thought it would be worth 20 billion. Um so that's you know, it's decent growth, but it's not it's not spectacularly amazing growth. Um but what's really I think what will really come through when we do present the findings is just the uh the level of detail in terms of the challenges the industry is facing when it comes to sourcing talent, um, when it comes to making the right investments, uh and when it comes to adapting to all of the changes in terms of paid media, owned media. Um Things like neuroscience, you know, the, the requirement to have more creative skills, content designers, and so forth, and also making it fun. Mm. You know, there seems to be a little bit of malaise in the industry about about the scale of the challenge.
0: Well, um, don't give away too much, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you'll have nothing to uh, to present. Don't worry, it. that that really is the tip of the iceberg. Are you, are you actually presenting it there, or no? I don't think it?
3: we're presenting. it. I think what what will happen is we will. Um, have the print version ready for the event excellent, good stuff
0: Um, we are back after a couple of quick messages to talk with Esri uh, on the latest in design thinking
3: Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversis enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversis.com.
2: Support for the C-Suite podcast comes from broadcast specialist marketeers.
0: Broadcast specialist marketeers.
1: Market... Hires? Marketeers. Half of the world's most valuable brands.
2: User marketers delivering stories and content on air, online, and to mobile that capture attention.
1: Marketeers switch on the power of broadcast. Very nice. I use Marketeers. You do. I love it.
2: That's funny
0: that we were talking about cereal before because that second advert is is very suspiciously uh, similar to something I may have heard on that <laughs> podcast for a yeah. for a potential for I a particular it, yeah, n- newsletter should, supplier.
3: I should have said about about. Our echo chamber shows also um, produced by Market Tires, as I'm, <laughs> as I'm now going to to refer to them Absolutely. from now on.
0: Anyway, it's enough plugs for uh, our, our producers here. Um, welcome back to the uh, Second World PR Forum special episode of the C Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my guests Paolo Enrique Suarez, Arun Suderman, and Ezri Karlebach, um who we're going to chat to now because um, he's running a workshop at the forum entitled Design Thinking Plus PR. Equals and I didn't know whether to include the hashtag bit here, but Absolutely. hashtag future-proof yeah. practice. Um, tell us about design thinking.
2: Uh, well, actually, Arun set the stage perfectly for this conversation, talking about the PR industry struggling to adapt to change, um, looking for talent, uh, promoting creativity, and actually along the way trying to have some fun. These are all things that design thinking promotes. It's not the the sole purpose or or main kind of benefit of. Design thinking, but actually, those are all attributes of design thinking. So it's very interesting that that, uh, what the Holmes report is finding is that those are the things that the PR industry is struggling with. Now, I should, in the interests of full disclosure, admit that I'm not a designer, Um, but over the last sort of 15 years or so, um, I've headed up the comms department in a couple of large arts and design institutions and like I suspect a large number of PR and comms people I've been a client on some pretty big design projects as well so I've worked with designers a lot Um, and I did become very interested in the way that they work and particularly the idea that design is actually all about change and there's a wonderful quote from a man called Herbert Simon who wrote one of the founding texts of um, design thinking which we'll mention again uh, in a moment I think he said everyone designs who devises courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. Now, there is a whole kind of history of design thinking and design methodologies, which we don't have time to go into now. The point is that it is high on the agenda for business executives. Um, If you saw the Harvard Business Review, uh, September 2015 edition, you will have seen that the evolution of design thinking was the cover story complete with the black polo neck sweater that is emblematic huh. of designers, put on the cover of HBR. Um, but the blurb says that uh, this is no longer just about product design. It wasn't ever. It was about architecture and all sorts of other things, but never mind. Um, they go on to say executives are using design thinking to devise strategy and manage change. So I think um, the fact is that it's it's hit the business agenda quite significantly. And one of the reasons for that is because businesses themselves, along with their PR departments and the agencies who work with them are struggling to keep up with the pace of change know that they need to do things differently but aren't quite sure how to do it Um, and also know that they need to attract um, talent from a new generation that possibly thinks in different ways that is used to different kind of um, attributes particularly at work Um, so that i think there's there's a a sense that because design is and now I'm going to get a bit academic, but because design is a socially embedded practice, the rise of design thinking in the business agenda is linked to the rise of purpose, which all businesses know they need to find, articulate and share. Um, and for younger people coming into the workplace, that's what they look for. They're not necessarily looking for the huge salary package or the job stability or those other things that, that we used to think were great. They still are in some respects. They're looking for the purpose, the why, why is a business doing something? Um, so that sort of social embedding uh, that that is native in design, I think, is one of the reasons why um, business executives are looking to it to help them manage change.
0: I've got I've got some questions to ask you on it, but actually, to pick picking up, I know this is going to sound really ridiculous, but what came first, that the design thinkers wearing the black polo neck or did Steve Jobs get everyone else to start wearing it
2: <laughs> <laughs> mm, uh, that's a good question I'm not sure I think the, 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 there's a lovely saying that human beings didn't discover fire they designed it. So I think it goes back to the days of um, saber tooth tiger skins right. rather than black polar net jumpers.
0: We're, we're using him as, as an example. I'm, I'm guessing Apple are an example of design thinkers. What, what are other organizations that, that use this approach? I, I've made that assumption. I'm, I'm assuming that's yes, Yes,
2: and, and that's another major factor in the rise of design thinking is the success of design-led companies. We all know that Apple's success is a lot to do with the quality of the design. Um, led, of course, by uh, a British designer, uh, Sir Jonathan Ive, as he's now called. Um, <clears throat> but the other companies also use uh, design as a sort of way of leading their product or service or as a way of supporting other companies. So um, David Kelly, who was the founder of IDEO, as a consultancy, uh, made the term design thinking popular in in the early 90s. And he drew in in exactly the way that I'm suggesting on the sort of skills – that we typically associate with designers, things like nonlinear problem solving, lateral thinking, being persuasive about a number of possible different outcomes, um, and that's sort of taken off alongside the idea that something that is well designed and and that you appreciate as well designed is in, is intrinsically valuable. So, along with Apple, you'd have companies like Samsung um, and Samsung's chief marketing. Oh, sorry, not Samsung, HTC, whose chief marketing officer um, Idris Muti has written an excellent book. On design thinking for strategic innovation, Um, those are all companies that are making use of design thinking. Either, as I say, because they're led by design in their practice, or because they're using it to solve problems and manage change.
0: Uh, uh, Irene, you wrote about design thinking in a post about the creativity and PR study on the uh, on the Holmes report at the end of last year. Again, I was just doing a little bit of uh, sort of research on this. Yesterday, I found in that article, I read that, uh, and this is now Go Creates founder and report co author uh, Claire Bridges, mm-hmm. said that the PR industry could learn a lot from the world of design thinking and lean startups and sort of cited prototyping, iterating, developing ideas rather than budget, all in or nothing. What's your take mm, on this whole area?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I might let Esri you know, get into the, the actual specific details of what Claire is saying there, but broadly speaking, um, I think that the what we found we've been doing this this creativity and PR study uh for I think 3 or 4 years now what we found is that whilst the industry generally recognizes they have to become more creative and they think that this they tend to view it in terms of output uh rather than as something that needs to be integrated into their thinking into their business so they they often view it one way of thinking about it is they view it in terms of content rather than culture so when they think of when they talk about creativity, they're thinking about, okay, well, how does how does our campaign become more creative? You know, we'll do an infographic that's creative. Or, um, you know, we'll, we'll put a visual on this tweet. Um, we'll hire some designers. They're not necessarily thinking about how do we make our culture more creative? How do we apply um, that kind of thinking to every aspect of our business? You know, not just the work we're doing, the way we're hiring people, the way we're, we're, we're planning our office, you know. Maybe we need a ping pong table. Sorry, that was a bit flippant. But you see my point is there's yeah. there's a, a, a disconnect sometimes between um, PR in agencies specifically who understand they need to, to become more creative, but then how they go about implementing it. And Ezra, I'd love to hear your
0: views on, on that. Well, before, before, Ezra, before you, you come back to you, I just, Paolo, I just wanted to check, is is this something that, that you've seen in your work at all or, or any of the sort of, industries or agencies in Brazil?
1: Uh, yes, um, I think the use of uh, design thinking is getting more popular and uh, we have seen some results. We have tried it uh, at Valley and I've seen some companies uh, around using it. And uh, in my opinion, uh, if we can you know, break the barriers between areas and putting people to work together uh, in a way to find uh, a common solution, uh, I guess the results will be much better. So uh, that's what we're trying to implement here in the communication area, is to actually choose and uh, design and think would give us the tools to use it uh, in a different way. So I've seen this work, it's a great methodology, and we can create things uh, and ideas without uh, limits.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think both the points that, that Arun and Paolo have made are absolutely spot on. There is a tendency to view design thinking as a sort of tactical thing. As you say, it's, it's about content, but it needs to be about culture. Um, it, it, it works at its best. I think that the results are most um, dramatic if it's applied at a systemic level. And a lot of design thinking is actually related to systems thinking and to approaching the whole organisation or the whole Uh, problem or project that a a particular group is working on. Um, And as Paolo says, breaking down barriers is a key part of it as well. Um, Interestingly, design thinking is now being applied right at the heart of government. Um, The UK government set up something called the Policy Lab. They hired one of the top designers, uh, a woman called Andrea Siodmok, used to be um, head of design at the Design Council, and she now runs this unit for the government looking at how to use design thinking to improve public policy um, and one of the examples that she gives is working with the police on how to improve the process whereby people report crimes um, and just to cut a long story short the point about breaking down barriers is they got a chief constable they got people who unfortunately experienced or uh, been on the wrong end of a crime they got other people involved in the process and put them all in a room together and had them use design processes and what they came out with uh, made a huge difference it saved I think something like £37 million a year is is the figure. It's in mm-hmm. Andrea's speech. I can give you the link. Um, and the chief constable in question said it was the best day he'd ever had at work. <laughs> so uh, I think that, that that tells you something about the ability of, of design processes to change things around so that people see things from a different perspective and, yeah. and, and create genuine innovation.
0: Well, we'll it would be good to get that link. And what we'll do is we'll share that when I sort of write up the the sort of post that, that goes with the podcast and we can put that at the, at the bottom of the, um, at, at the page. Uh, aside from attending the workshop in Toronto, of course, and I know you've mentioned a, a book and the Harvard Business Review, but any recommendations for listeners who want to find out a little bit more about the whole topic?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned the book um, Sciences of the Artificial by Herbert Simon. Uh, he was a computer scientist and wrote about a number of different subjects, but that was one of the founding texts. Um, Also Idris Muti's book, which is called Design Thinking for Strategic Innovation. Um, And if you really want to get into the sort of design mode of thinking, I would recommend The Design Way by Harold Nelson and Eric Stolterman.
0: Excellent. Well, um, I think like uh, we were saying with Paolo earlier, I think this is going to be an interesting debate. Um, So I will make sure that I'm... uh in your session at the event and look forward to it Um, maybe we can chat some more and we'll we'll, you know record a bit more on the podcast afterwards Um, which leads me nicely onto the fact that the organisers of the World PR Forum have asked me to remind uh, C-Suite podcast listeners that early bird registration deadline for the event ends on Tuesday the 15th of March Um, so if you are interested in attending and seeing more of Paolo and Esri um, and perhaps catching up with myself or Arun in Toronto uh, from May the 29th to the 31st then you need to go to worldprforum.com. you can also follow all the conversation around the event on Twitter using hash WPRF 2016 so all that remains for me to do is to thank my three guests once again Arun Sudaman Ezri Karlabach, and Paulo Enrique Suarez thanks as always to Marketeers for recording the show and patching Paulo in from Brazil and don't forget you can subscribe to this series of podcasts on iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast in the iTunes store and any ratings and reviews will be much appreciated whilst you're there as well um, finally if you want to suggest any topics, guests, or even inquire about sponsoring these shows, you can get in touch with me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith, or drop me a line using the contact form at the uh, website csuitepodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.
3: Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversis enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit
0: conversis.com. This podcast is produced by the broadcast specialist Marketeers, delivering stories and content on air, online and to mobile that capture attention. To find out how we can help you influence the reputation of your brand or change the behaviour of your audience, contact us today.